Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, September 6th, 2021. Happy Labor Day. In honor of Labor Day, we have a podcast about labor. Caroline Friedman joins me to talk about how long is labor and what's the deal with the Friedman curve. No relation. Basically, we're going to talk about how we as obstetricians evaluate the speed of labor or the length of labor and how that has evolved over the years. This is something that a lot of pregnant women ask us about, so we thought it might be helpful to do this podcast. On Thursday, we have part two of our home birth edition of high-risk birth stories, so be sure to check that out. Tomorrow and Wednesday are Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, so I wanted to wish all of you a happy and healthy upcoming year. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you Thursday for high-risk birth stories, the home birth edition, part two. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Caroline Friedman, welcome back to the podcast. How goes it? Thank you. It's good. All good. How are you? I'm wonderful. How's your summer been? It's been nice. I'm always a fan of sunshine and warm weather, so can't complain. Well, we definitely have had warm. It's been it's been hyper warm. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it has. <laughs> Not good for someone whose air conditioning is on the fritz, hopefully being fixed as we speak. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck indeed. So we're talking today about a really interesting topic, and it's sort of titled, How Long is Labor? What's normal? What do we do? Everyone, like, how long is my labor going to be? At what point do you say it's abnormal? When do I have a C-section? All these things. And it is legitimately complicated. Right. Part of the reason that's also so interesting and why I wanted to have you on is probably the most famous study of this came out with something called the Friedman Curve. Right. I it's, wish I could take credit. Every training obstetrician and midwife, uh, maybe in the world, but certainly in the US, knows, loves or hates, but knows <laughs> the Friedman Curve. Exactly. And, so that, and that's not your curve, you're saying? No. <laughs> a little before my time, I think. For your time. Doc, Dr. Emmanuel Friedman, Uncle Manny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, we'll 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 get into that. But you know, when 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 people ask you this question, just sort of broad strokes, high level, how do you talk to them about like the length of labor, what it's supposed to be? Well, like most things in pregnancy, it's you know, it's complicated. Uh -huh. There's not a clear answer. A lot of individual factors, but we talk about the fact that there are different sort of stages of labor, we call it. There are different parts of labor. And so asking the question of how long is labor really depends on, you know, what specifically you're talking about. Are you talking about active labor? Are you talking about latent labor? Are we talking about the part of labor where you're pushing, you know, potentially? And it all kind of depends on what's going on with your body, what number baby it is, whether we're inducing you or you've come in in your own labor, yeah. things like that. Yeah. And there's so much variation. I mean, you'll hear people say, I was in labor for three days, right? And right. someone else will say, yeah, my water broke. I started contracting and the baby came out two hours later. And you're like, right. whoa, like that right. is a massive difference. And it's not like, you know, I guess it's better for the baby to come out quick than a three-day labor. So we're going to say better or worse. I guess I'd rather have a quick labor. But it's not like one is sort of normal and one is abnormal necessarily. There's right. definitely a lot of human variation in this. And so we try to you know, not focus too much on calling something normal or abnormal because, you know, it just means it's maybe like different. Or if you look at a bell-shaped curve, maybe some people are on one end, sort of more fast labors and other people on another end, 
more slow labors. And ultimately, it's really about however long the labor is, is it safe, right? right? Is it okay to continue labor that long? Or should we be intervening either to speed it up potentially? People have questions about that. Or uh, sort of more drastic to say, you know what, we're, we're putting an end to this and we're doing a C-section. And these are not, quote unquote, black and white decisions. Right. There's a lot of thought that goes into each of these decisions. And I think the it'd be really nice in this podcast to sort of, you know, talk about these ideas so people get a sense of what we're thinking about when we're helping people yeah. labor, what their doctor might be thinking, what their midwife, what their labor nurse, and sort of to get a better sense. Yeah. So you talked about this idea of stages of labor. Yep. So what do you mean by that? What are the stages of labor? So technically speaking, there are three stages of labor. The first stage is sort of what we consider anything when you're, once we've decided you're in labor, mm -hmm. your cervix is starting to dilate, you're contracting painfully, whether it's naturally or because we've mm -hmm. given you something to make you contract while the cervix is dilating up until the point where the cervix is what we call fully dilated, which is about 10 centimeters of dilation. Right. And so a non-laboring, non-pregnant cervix is what we call closed, meaning there's no dilation, and then it will slowly start to dilate. And so that time that it takes, which again, could be a couple of hours to three days, potentially, right. of cervical dilation is the first stage. Right. Then once you reach that full dilation, that 10 centimeter stage begins what we call the second stage. And if the plan is to try to have a baby vaginally at that point, then that's when we usually either allow a patient to what we call labor down, mm -hmm. so just sort of hang out at 10 centimeters and mm -hmm. try to see if gravity will do it and the contractions will do it and help bring the baby down. And then also the pushing part where mom's efforts help to push the baby out. Right. And then there's the third stage, which is essentially the time after delivery of the baby until the placenta is delivered. And relative to the other stages, that one is usually pretty uneventful and pretty quick. Right. And often not something that the mom really needs to worry about or be involved too right. much in. Or even realizes that we're thinking about that right. as a stage of exactly. labor, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, the, the longer part, the first stage is what people think of as like the labor portion. And the second stage is like the pushing portion. Right. And then the third stage, they, they're like, what? There's a third stage? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's our job, you know, right. with exactly. the placenta. Exactly. You enjoy the baby. And one of the interesting things you you mentioned was this idea of when does the first stage, like what's the starting point? Like we know what the ending point right. is. It's when the cervix is fully dilated. Right. And the second stage, all right, we therefore know when it starts and we know when it ends because the baby comes out. Right. What's sometimes hard to pin down is when does labor actually start? Right. right. Sometimes people say I was in labor for three days, but in fact, they were only in labor for 12 hours. They were just contracting right. for two and a half days. And so on our end, so we define labor as when you have both regular painful contractions and the cervix is right. opening because you could have one or the other. Some people, Correct. their cervix opens slowly and they come into the office and they are two or three centimeters dilated, but they're clearly not in labor because right. they're not contracting. And there's others who they're contracting and they could be painful. They could be annoying, you know, at any level of discomfort, but their cervix is totally firm and closed for a few days. They're also not in labor. They're just contracting. Right which is very uh, distressful for a lot of people that they're not yet in labor, yet they're in pain. But by definition, they're not in labor. So we sort of need to see both happen. Right. That's true at the end of pregnancy. And same thing when we're talking about preterm labor, that's how we define it in the preterm period as well. They need to have both. So when that happens until the cervix is fully dilated, we call that the first stage. And I think that the other thing you mentioned, which sort of confuses some people is within the first stage, you mentioned latent and active. Yes. So conceptually, what is latent labor versus active labor? So we generally think about latent labor as kind of that first part. 
of mm-hmm. labor when your cervix is less dilated and progress can be a little slower and your contractions may be a little bit more irregular um, in both frequency and intensity. And then active labor is towards the end of that process. The exact cutoff, again, is a little unclear Mm -hmm. and a little variable from person to person, but that's generally when the cervix dilates more quickly in a little bit more of a predictable fashion and the contractions are generally pretty regular, frequent, painful unless you have an epidural at that point, but still in theory would be more intense. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for women who have had children before or for, you know, whether it's doctors or midwives or med students or people who have observed women in labor, we've all sort of seen this idea that the first part of labor is a slow process. Right. You know, someone's contracting for four hours and they're three centimeters, and then they're contracting for another four, six hours and they're four centimeters. And then they're contracting for four hours and they're five centimeters. And then an hour later, they're nine centimeters. And an hour later, they're pushing. Right. And it's sort of this sort of slow, 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 and suddenly fast. And that's where, you know, your good friend, Dr. Friedman, the other Dr. Friedman (laughs) came in and he sort of mapped this out in the 60s. And his curve is this basically this what we call sigmoidal shape where there's the the beginning part of the curve where he mapped out sort of time and hours on the x-axis and how dilated the cervix was on the y-axis. And so there's this very sort of like steady, slow slope line moving upwards. And then at a certain point, it just shot up, right? right? You know, with each hour, the cervix dilated a lot more. And his data, it happened generally around four centimeters dilated. That's what he found. Right. It was variable. Some people, their cervix starts dilating rapidly at two and some people at three and some people it's five, but on average it was four. And because of that curve that he produced, I mean, literally in the 60s, Everyone was managing labor in a way that if a woman was not following that curve, there was something wrong, right? right? There was something abnormal. And that's where the term like either labor dystocia came about or or abnormal or prolonged or delayed or, you know, things like that or, you know, uh, arrested labor, all of these terms. And at least when I trained, we were very, uh, we were sticklers about the labor, about the labor curve of Friedman. We, we looked at it, we thought about it, we mapped it out, you know, one centimeter per hour, 1.2 centimeters per hour, 1.5 centimeters per hour. We had all this math, but it sort of got a little more lax over the years. Yes. There, there, you know, as C-section rates went up in the country, there were various attempts to sort of look at why? Why were C-sections happening and what could we do to try to prevent C-sections? And so there became a lot of discussion about, well, maybe maybe not all labors are quote unquote abnormal if they don't follow exactly the Friedman curve. And so we started looking at it again and thought maybe things happen a little bit more slowly than we previously thought. And maybe that active phase doesn't start for everybody at four centimeters. And in fact, we think probably now it's closer to six centimeters or so for most people. Yeah. And what's really interesting is, you know, when people started to question the Friedman curve, there was a, a guy named Dr. Zang who published a lot on this. And it was really, you know, in the past 10, 20 years, and he sort of developed, it wasn't even a curve anymore. It was more just like a line that everyone developed, you know, their cervix dilates a lot slower than Friedman sort of documented himself. And like you said, if there is an inflection point where it gets quicker, it's usually around six centimeters. And people thought that maybe sort of women have changed potentially over the past 30, 40 years, maybe because, you know, women either uh, have better nutrition or maybe they don't smoke or maybe they're on average 
older versus younger, or maybe they're heavier versus lighter, all these things. But what's really fascinating, a lot of people don't know this, is Zhang went back actually and looked at data from the time of Friedman in the 60s and found it to be the same. Huh. The way you sort of map these out is very complicated because not everyone gets examined at exactly the same time. So you right. have to sort of do all these like logarithmic calculations that's way above my head for how he did it. But essentially, it doesn't look like women or laborers have changed. It just sort of how we examine their labor curve has yep. changed a little bit. So yes, we're definitely a little more lax. I mean, you trained in a few years after I did. And when you were training, did people even talk about the Friedman curve? Did they sort of stick to it or they just sort of taught it and said, we don't use it? Yeah, the latter. <laughs> it was sort of a, you know, let's talk about it, but we're going to right. not follow it so much anymore. Did that upset you because you're a Friedman? No. It definitely has led to sort of a greater acceptance, I would say, on the part of, you know, doctors. Uh, midwives were always pretty accepting of longer labors. Uh, they were definitely ahead of the curve in this regard. But it's, at least with doctors, more accepting of longer labors uh, and giving people more time in the attempt, uh, again, like you said, to lower the C-section rate uh, or lower interventions, potentially. There are some risks to longer labors, sure. which are well known. And we talk about that women, you know, risk of infection, you know, the longer you're in labor, the longer your, you know, membranes are ruptured, this, you could have an infection for you and the baby. It doesn't tend to be life-threatening, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a risk. And yep. the big one is a higher risk of bleeding, of yep. hemorrhage after delivery. And these are both well-known. So you have someone who's in labor. Yep. How do you make a decision about what to do? Like, for example, do you have any cutoffs for, hey, I think this is going too slow and I'm going to intervene? Or is it just sort of your overall gestalt? Like, what do you do? It's definitely a gestalt. And, you know, it also is assuming that mom and baby are doing fine. Right. The best that we can tell. In terms of a cutoff, you know, for that first part, that latent phase of labor, I really try not to have a cutoff, assuming everybody's doing fine. Right. And pretty much every time, either mom or baby will you know, if labor is never progressing out of that latent phase, either mom or baby will start to not tolerate it or they'll get past that phase. And so I, I've never really or very rarely have I ever had to say, you know, you're in labor, but you're still in the latent phase and it's been too long. So I think we should do a C-section. Right. Usually what happens is you get into more active labor, at which point it's a little bit easier to assess whether things are progressing appropriately or not, or the baby's not tolerating it or something else is happening that makes us want to deliver you sooner. Yeah. And I think Part of the reason a lot of people find this difficult is there's so much gray here. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, if, if we did nothing and people labored forever without anyone tending to them, the baby's going to come out, right? It's not like they're going to have a C-section naturally. The baby right. will deliver. However, we know that there is a point after which it's become more dangerous to labor than to do a C-section. Right. And we know that because of historical data before the time of C-section, women died in labor, babies died in labor, horrible things happened. And so we know that that's not the right way to do it. If you look at some other you know, countries around the world where there's poor access to healthcare, they either labor at home continuously or either because they don't go to hospital or they can't get to a hospital, there is no hospital to go to, whatever it is. Again, that's where you see women who have, you know, mortality rates in labor and babies dying and, you know, terrible things happening with, you know, with their bladders and fistulas and really bad things. So we know that a world without cesareans is not great. Right. And so the question is, how do you know? How do you know when you've hit that point where it's more safe to switch to a cesarean than it is to continue to labor? And there isn't like a light that goes off or an alarm that goes off. 
And you can't use a hard cutoff in terms of just hours, say after X hours, because that's not going to be the right way to do it. Because for some women, you waited too long and other women, you haven't waited long enough. And so you have to really individualize that and who could do that, right? So that's where all of our training and experience and reading and practice and all these things come in. And for anyone, you know, if I'm there with someone, it's hard for me to explain why my, you know, whatever 20 years and thousands of deliveries lead me to think a certain way. They just do. do. Yeah. And for someone's like, why? It's like, well, it's hard to say why. Like, I just like, there's something not right here or don't worry. There's something is right here. It's Correct. okay. And, and I just think people have a very hard time, like letting go of that and just giving it over to someone else to make those decisions. It's, it's difficult. It is. We're not used to that. Right. No, we're not. And it's, you know, we're used to having answers and having clear cut things and I get it, but it's definitely uh, an art. Yeah. It's also hard because there are different ways to do it. I mean, we know that, you know, there's one way of quote unquote managing labor is to be kind of what we say expectant, which means hands off as long as things are healthy, let things go as they would naturally, you know, don't intervene. Just let it be and just keep an eye on mother and baby. And that's one way to do it. Again, unless necessary, so to speak. And there's another way where you sort of proactively try to get things faster from the beginning, which sounds impatient or something, a very doctory, but actually there's data that it that it's not a bad thing. You know, to right. like rupture membranes early and if contraction space out, start Pitocin early, and that it leads to as good or maybe better outcomes than just waiting. And so both of those are legitimate and people do it differently. But it's not like if you have someone who's just sitting back that they're lazy or someone who's like breaking the water early that they're like nuts. It's all reasonable under sort of management of labor and people use their judgment of what's best for each person. Do you you tend to be more expectant or more active in a sense? I think a combination. Yeah. I think a combination. And again, it really depends. You know, if someone's coming in and very already good labor pattern and making progress, you know, it's things are fine. But if someone's been either unstable or has been contracting for days and still hasn't done things, then sometimes, you know, breaking water and giving a little Pitocin can be very helpful. Right. Right. So I think it really just depends. Right. The question I get a lot either in labor or sometimes before is, well, we know that Pitocin increases the risk of a C-section. So how do you how do you answer that? I generally tell people that that's not true. <laughs> False. <Yeah>. False. <laughs> that we know that that's not the case. There are a lot of reasons why people think that. Yeah. I think the internet is a scary place for <laughs> information of all kinds. Wait, the hot hot take by Dr. by Dr. Friedman. There are things on the internet that are not necessarily Uh-oh. correct. Some right. of you might be learning this for the first time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think Pitocin is complicated because the whole point of it is to make people contract more strongly and potentially more frequently because we're giving it because the body's not doing it on its own. Right. And so labor with painful and frequent contractions can be stressful to a baby, whether it comes naturally or whether it comes from Pitocin. Right. But when it happens naturally, there's really no one, quote unquote, or no thing, quote unquote, to blame. Right. But if we are giving you Pitocin and then something happens it feels like the Pitocin or the doctor that gave you the Pitocin is the one who caused it. Yeah. I mean, Pitocin has the potential to cause harm. Sure. Obviously, if you if you give it incorrectly in the wrong dose too much, yeah, sure. Someone could contract too much. You can cause problems. But it's really not the way we give it. We start very low and we, what's called titrated, we give a little bit more, a little bit more. And like every 20, 30 minutes until the contraction pattern is sort of regular and typical yeah. and sort of what 
pretty much most women have in labor. And, and what I tell people is if you if you do correctly, Pitocin will decrease your risk right. of a C-section. The reason we're giving it is because we're worried that if we don't give it, you're going to end up with a C-section, right. you know, because nothing's happening. If you're six centimeters or 12 hours, like you're not dilating. So the Pitocin like, is your last chance, right. essentially, to get that going. And I do think that, it, it, again, people, you know, sometimes they're just told something wrong, but other times you can actually, you could design a study that says that, yeah, I 200 women in labor and the 100 that got Pitocin had a higher C-section rate. But yeah, you didn't randomly give those 100 Pitocin. They got it because their labors were not progressing. Right. And uh, that's the reason they had a C-section, not because they got Pitocin. The exactly. Pitocin was the cure, wasn't the problem. And so I think that's something that's important for people to know. And the same thing like with breaking someone's water. It speeds up the labor. It doesn't cause a C-section. Right. And we don't have like a clock where after the water's broken, you must by law be delivered within a certain amount of hours or you shall have a C-section. It doesn't work like that. No. You end up with a C-section with your water broken. It's not because your water's broken. It's because something is not going right. And so are there any parameters that you generally do use as sort of like a baseline for yeah. how you think about labor and how often you might examine someone in labor to see if they're progressing? Yeah. I mean, you know, because we expect things to move slower in the latent part, we generally avoid, you know, doing exams too regularly. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon to go four or six-ish hours mm -hmm. between exams. Once you've hit that six centimeter point, when we think things are going to get a little bit more active, the idea is that you may dilate about a centimeter per hour. Right. And so we usually examine you a little bit more frequently, maybe every two-ish hours at mm -hmm. that point. Again, we don't really use that as like a hard and fast rule of like, okay, well, it's been two hours and you haven't dilated exactly two centimeters, so I'm going to do a C-section now. But, you know, if after four hours we expect you to dilate four centimeters and you haven't made any change, maybe that's a good time to talk about starting something like Pitocin or breaking your water if it hasn't already been broken and going from there. These are always conversations. It's tough sometimes, which is why I like this podcast, because, I mean, to have an hour conversation with every single person in labor about, okay, here's the Friedman curve, here's how we think about this and all these things. So I think it's good to come prepped. But essentially, I'm always sort of thinking, is the labor progressing in some fashion whatsoever? Right. You know, there's a difference between having very slow progress versus having no, no progress. progress. Yep. Um, that's number one. Number two, obviously, a huge variable is where are they, right? If they're three or four centimeters, okay, we got lots and lots and lots of time. Whereas if they're eight or nine, it's a little bit unusual for that to happen. And I'm more concerned. Yep. But then there's everything else that goes into it. Like you said, it's a much different scenario if... The baby's heart rate is fine. The mother looks great. She's healthy. It's an uncomplicated pregnancy. Everything looks fine. Yeah, you're going to be a lot more lenient with the labor because the risks are lower. Right. But if you have a situation where, you know, the baby's heart rate is is dropping every time there's a contraction, the mom is a fever, she's got high blood pressure, she's bleeding, I mean, she's got medical problems, or, you know, the baby's very high up, it's a big baby, we, you know, it's... Yeah, that you're gonna your your lines, your thresholds are gonna be a little bit different because you're always balancing risk and benefit. Exactly. And that's why you can't just say after X hours I do this and after Y hours I do that. It has to be for each person. There's some people if they who if they don't make any dilation in two hours, I'm like, listen, for you, we're done. And there's other people, I'll give them twelve hours, right? It just right. sort of depends on exactly what's going on. Yep. Um, and that's uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. Do you find that when the time comes, you think you have to do an intervention, whether it's breaking our water or giving Pitocin or potentially recommending a cesarean. Is it something that you find most people are quite 
accepting of. Most people have a hard time with that. Uh, obviously, there's variation, but what has your experience been? I think it's a little of both. My goal is to try to be as open and honest and communicative during the labor process so that nothing comes as a surprise. Right. And that the you know patients know exactly or as much as they possibly can what I'm thinking, what I'm watching for. Mm -hmm. So that when the time comes to make those recommendations, hopefully they're on board. Right. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of personality that goes into this and it's really part of why it's an art is individualizing recommendations medically for each person. Yeah. And part of why it's an art is that this is interpersonal. Yeah. This is like communication skills and this is, you know, uh, emotions and this is so much on the EQ versus IQ scale of things and trying to manage labor, right? Because it's not like when you're you know, you're a surgeon and you're trying to deal with a complicated surgical thing, patients asleep, yep. you know, you're just like, it's like you and the intestines, right? And <laughs> so just, we're going to get this right. And that's exactly. a very different focus from, and again, it's not just the the woman in labor, there's her partner, potentially her doula, potentially her mother's in the room. She's got someone on the phone. She's yep. got, you know, and, and there's a lot of people to sort of navigate these decisions and it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. So patients out there have mercy on us. <laughs> we're trying, we're trying hard. So you, you get someone, she's fully dilated, yep. right? So the first stage of labor is over. Success yes. She's fully dilated. Tell me about the second stage of labor. Well, now the fun starts. <laughs> the second stage of labor is fun. I mean, it is. It's You're getting close. Your things are exciting. But it's work for the mom, actually. Uh -huh. It can be yeah. a little bit stressful. It's a lot. Right. And so the idea is we push with contractions and... The process can be anywhere from a couple of minutes to a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that with the first baby, the average amount of pushing, average, mm -hmm. is an hour or more, yeah. which means that 50% of people, more than an hour. Yeah. And people are like, say what? <laughs> pushing for how long? Yeah. Uh, and that's normal. Again, that's just, that's normal. That's nature. That's, you know, that's geometry at work. That's trying to get that baby out of there. Fortunately for people who've had children before, it gets usually a shorter amount of time, like an average for a second baby, 20 minutes, right? So that gets cut down a lot. Usually. The, yeah, usually it's average. It's an average for, for, for people pushing. And, and some people are pushing for two, three hours. And again, it's, it's sort of the same concept that there are numbers you can read like it's it is unusual to have to be pushing for more than three hours but it happens mm -hmm. it's not like at three hours we have to do a c-section or do something but it's in our minds we're like all right are we doing the right thing we have to reassess like is it going to happen is it safe does a baby look okay you know are there going to be issues and so we we do think about it a little bit differently when it starts getting to two, three hours. But it's, again, it's it's not like a, a law or a hard rule that right. you have to do something. And right. some of the other variables, like we said, besides first baby versus not first baby, sometimes for women with an epidural, it's a little harder to get the hang of pushing. Right. Uh, I find the pushing is actually the same. It's sort of like when they sort of get it right. There, yep. there, there is this idea that women with an epidural take longer to push. I think it's just the front end. Yeah. It's like, you know, some people get it right away after two, three pushes and other people it takes like 30, 40 yeah. minutes to sort of get the hang because they don't have all the sensation, all that biofeedback of right. pushing. So it's, it's uh, not something that most people have done before. Right. Until, until they do it. <laughs> right. It is. Uh, but we're there. We're there to help. And, yep. you know, this is what you know, is what we do. Labor nurses there to help doulas, potentially, you know, whoever's there to help. This is where where we all um, earn our keep, so <laughs> to speak. And then. If there's a concern in the second stage that the head is not coming down, 
at the right speed or pace or whatever you want to say, what are our options at that point? There are three. One is as long as everybody's okay, we can try to keep going, mm-hmm. manage expectantly. But if it really doesn't seem to be making any progress and mom's getting tired or the baby's done with it, <laughs> depending on what the situation is, the options would be either a trial of an operative vaginal delivery right. or a C-section. Right. And not everybody is a candidate for an operative vaginal delivery. And so if that's not really brought up or it's brought up, but says not, you know, can't, we can't do it. It's not the safest. Then that's okay. Right. It's not that it's always an option. Right. It's not like everybody gets the option of one or the other. But certainly if we think it would be successful and we think it is a good option, then it then it's usually addressed. Right. And by operative, you mean vacuum or forceps. Right. right? Okay. So again, yes, that for many women, those are options. One of the reasons it might not be an option if the head is too high, it's just not safe. I mean, you you could in theory do it, but it would be very unsafe. So we would never try if the head is high. But if the head is low enough in the pelvis, for people who know what they're doing, it tends to be a quicker and generally safer process to do that than a C-section. But if the head is higher, it's the opposite. And sometimes there's you know, options and decisions and people can choose. But again, if, if the uh, the person delivering the baby or the, I guess the, the mother's delivering the baby, the person attending the delivery knows how to do forceps or vacuum, that generally is going to be safer and quicker for the mother and the baby than doing uh, a C-section. Now, does any of this change in your own mind when we look at a labor that's induced versus a labor that's what we call spontaneous? Because you said that you know spontaneous labors tend to go faster than induced labor. So, do your cutoffs change in any way? For the second stage, no. Mm-hmm. We just are more patient with the latent phase because the entire thing happens in the hospital. Right. Whereas a lot of times, patients who come in in their own labor will do at least a portion of the latent phase at home. Right. Or or before they come to the hospital. Yeah, and when we did the podcast on induction, part of the one of the big messages there was just what you're saying, like it takes a while. Because we're really like jumpstarting that labor process, but we're 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 sort of jumpstarting someone into the slow part, right? Right. Once they get into the faster part of labor, it tends to move at the same speed that right. had they gone into labor on their own. But that slow part, and we're you know quite lenient with time. Again, as long as the mother's fine and the baby's fine, that it may take a while. You're talking 12, 16 hours uh, of it in the hospital. So that's uh, that is something excellent. Friedman. Yeah. The Friedman curve. Love it. I mean, I guess if we don't care about the Friedman curve anymore, then I can make up something new with my name. All right, Caroline. Good stuff. Love having you on the podcast. You're, one of, you're one of our fan faves. Excellent. Go to the top of the charts and uh, and and copyright. We did not take the Friedman curve. We have no, uh, <laughs> Caroline has, has said she has no ownership over whatsoever, but it's great to have you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.